that. Uh, let's pray before we get into the rest of the service. Lord, we thank you so much uh, that you're good. Even as we started off today, we were singing about raising a hallelujah in the presence of our enemies or when life is kind of coming at us. That that's a time, Lord, we want to turn our hearts to praise you. And so even in the joys of life, I know there's families here this week who are celebrating uh, the birth of new kids. Uh, there's families who are celebrating new marriages. And uh, there's the other side of life where sometimes we, we uh, grieve when people we love go on to be with you. But Lord, we grieve with hope, knowing that this world is not all there is. And so we thank you that we can be a church family together that has all of the joys and sorrows and the ups and downs that are part of life. But God, that we don't have to do that alone and we don't have to do that without you. And so we pray, Lord, that even as we enter the holiday season, for so many, the holidays can bring up a lot of emotions, uh, some, some pain, some, a lot of people, maybe it's their first holiday alone. And so for all of those, God, we pray as we enter into that season, would you help us be a church to one another? that we would love each other well, walk with each other well. And even as we look into your word and, and study your scripture today, God, would you let it study us and transform us to build us into the kind of people that you're calling us to be for your name and your glory, God. So we thank you and we give you this time now. In Jesus' name, amen. As we start off today... Uh, at I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4 in the book of James. If you're new to scriptures and what we call the Old Testament, you're almost all the way in the back of the Bible. And you're always welcome to use a digital version of the Bible as well. I was thinking, the passage we're looking at today, uh, I was thinking of a story that relates to it. And do you ever have those times when you just feel like God obviously entered in and interacted in a moment to prove a point? Do you ever have one of those and, and, and where, where you feel like, oh, that was a clear sign of God? I was remembering um, a while ago, there's a, a, another pastor who, uh, a friend of mine who uh, is a really competitive guy. For some reason, most pastors tend to be. Uh, and uh, one of the things is he was this just huge guy, athlete, um, but we would, from time to time, play basketball together. And on the court, let me just say... His competitive nature wasn't always reflecting Christ. But we, so he would come out and be pretty, uh, pretty intense often. But he showed up one time, and, and, and for some reason that day, he had a brand new indoor-outdoor basketball, and he was really proud of this basketball. He was telling everybody about this. Hey, I have this new ball. This is the best ball you'll ever see. I paid $80 for this ball. And for some reason, throughout the whole game, he kept talking about how great his basketball is. And hey, don't mess with that. That's an $80 ball. It's, it's, we just kept hearing it over and over again. As, as the day ended, he walked off the court on the last game. His team had lost. So he took his brand new beautiful ball and he kicked it high into the air. And this is a giant guy. So the ball went flying into the air. As it came down, it kind of drifted a little off course and landed directly on top of the fence surrounding the outdoor court, and it went $80 of air just blew into the atmosphere. To which all of his buddies, who most of whom worked in churches and loved one another, fell on the ground laughing in hysterics at the moment of his $80 ball being popped. It was one of those moments I just said, oh, how can you not believe in God? 
How can you not? It was as if God just said, watch this. This will be funny, guys. He's up in heaven. And the ball came down, and he just kind of gently pushed it on top of there and popped it. I, there's moments like that where I just feel like God enters in, and we're reminded of the importance of humility. I was thinking back to uh, when I was in high school, and I was into snow skiing quite a bit, and I was on a race team. And, and when we weren't racing, I'd still be at the, uh, up on the slopes almost every day. And so what do you do as a teenager? You build jumps. You'd, you'd go off of jumps and all of that. And one day we built this giant one, and we'd go flying off it. And we had it so big that you could put two or three people underneath you. You'd do tricks over your friends. And, and it was a great day of that until the end of the day when there was this girl on the ski team who was a lot older than me who was hanging out and said, hey, watch me. Go down there and hang out by this jump and watch me go off it. So I went and I had a, you know, I was known as one of the better skiers. So all day I was pulling off all these great tricks until someone had to be watching. I said, you got to watch this. And I went to show her how amazing I am. And as I flew into the air, we did this thing where in skiing, when you lose your balance, we call it rolling down the windows. Anyone ever do that? Will you do this? I know teenagers, you think, isn't this how you roll down windows? You just go like that. There was a time when you had to go like this to roll down windows. <laughs> so we, I flew into the air. I rolled down the windows as I ungraciously tumbled to the ground, uh, very from high in the air. So that was impressive. But truly in moments like that, I realized that pride literally sometimes comes before the fall. <laughs> what James is talking about today is he's going to talk about this idea of humility and the idea of pride. And a question for us to start with is this. What does it mean to be humble before God, and why should we be? Why does God value humility in our lives? What is the importance of it? And today in James chapter 4, we're going to continue this series, and we're going to see James actually address the reason why it matters. And to get you up to speed, we've been looking at, through this book so far, it's a letter that he writes to a group of Christians to really explain to them, this is what it looks like to live as a community of followers of Jesus in a world that not everyone else believes. So how are we to interact with one another? That's the point of this letter. And he's been talking about, hey, if you truly are changed by Jesus, then how we treat the poor really matters. If you're really cha changed by Jesus, then how you treat one another and not show favoritism for the, the rich versus the poor or those who have power versus those who don't, like, that really matters that you treat people equally. If you're walking as a community of faith, how you use your words with one another really matters. Are you using them to build one another up or tear each other down? Because in the community of faith, he would say, we need to use our words for good. And remember, for us, we translated it. It's not just our words, but it's also what we type to modernize it. What do we post? What do we send digitally? Are we using it for good? James has been encouraging us to look at the difference between earthly wisdom and heavenly wisdom. Uh, following the ways of this God who's created the world or the ways of the world that says, get ahead, stomp on others, do whatever you need to do because life is about you. Versus saying, no, life is bigger than me. So after all of these, and then we got to last week where James said, this is how we avoid conflict. And, and we thought it was pretty appropriate that we're in election season. So what great reminder to talk about how to avoid conflict. 
as James talked about, con most conflict, the root of it is our selfish ambition. We want to be right. We want our tribe to have power. We want our perspective to be known. And often what it can cause, even in relationships and marriage and with your kids, with friendships, it can cause conflict. So we go from there to where we pick up today in James chapter 4. And we're going to pick it up in verse 6. So join with me as we read a couple of verses and unpack it together. He starts off and says this, But God gives us a greater grace. Therefore, Scripture says this, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God and resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we're going to stop right there. Because I think before we talk about what humility looks like, I want to really see the beginning of verse 6, where James says, God will give us a greater grace. And this is on the backside of last week of what we looked at, of what it means to not be selfish, to ask for heavenly wisdom, to um, avoid that selfish ambition in our relationships. All of these things that can feel very demanding. It's really difficult to live this way. All the instructions that James has given us to this point are not easy, but he says, but God gives you a greater grace, meaning this. We start with the good news. Everything that God asks of us, he gives us. St. Augustine once said this, all the demands of God are already provided for in what he gives to you. So whatever he asks, he, through his grace, he's empowered you to live this way. And here's the good news. The good news is, even if we don't, this doesn't change our salvation. We are saved by the grace of Jesus. His grace is greater than all of our shortcomings. His grace is greater than all of our, uh, all the things where we think we have it right and we don't. His grace is greater. For us, you can't work your way to being forgiven. Jesus Christ has already done that work. You agree? And so he starts with this good news. Whatever we're going through, whatever you're experiencing, God gives us a greater grace. Our lives are rooted and built on what he has done and accomplished for us. He puts his spirit in us now to live his ways. He gives you a greater grace. Every obstacle you see, God gives you a greater grace of his presence. Every shortcoming, he gives you a greater grace of a place to land. And then it says, therefore, beginning with the good news, it says, therefore, that's why scripture said God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, because this, your life is rooted and based on him. If you rooted and base your life on you, your abilities, what you can accomplish, how smart you are, how eloquent you are, how powerful you are, how much money you have, that God is opposed to that because your life is not rooted in the giver of life. So he's opposed to that. He's already given us everything we need for this life. That's why there's no need to be proud. We can be humble. So he says, God's opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, here's the response. Submit, therefore, to God. Isn't that a popular world in 2022, to submit? Submit. Usually what this means is to willingly give authority to someone else. To willingly allow someone else to have authority in your life. 
Now, there's a few moments in Scripture you can interpret it to obey, and sometimes God will make others to submit in, in certain cases. But what this almost every time in Scripture refers to is a willful decision to give authority to someone else. So he's saying willfully give over the authority in your life to God. I remember uh, a few years ago, I was on campus here and uh, walking through the campus during the day, and there was someone sitting out there, and we sat down and talked for about an hour. I started talking about Scripture, started talking about Jesus. And we got to the point where I said, hey, do you, want to be, do you want to be forgiven by Jesus? Do you want, this is all we have to do. It says we're saved by grace through faith, not by your works. And so we got to the point where I said, do you want to pray together? And he said, yes, I'll pray. I want the forgiveness of Jesus. And we began praying. And, and, and we prayed and asked that God would forgive all of his sins and become his savior. And then at one point, we, I, the prayer, we went and I, and I said, hey, pray this with me. Jesus, we make you Lord of my life. And he stopped. And he looked at me and he said, hold on, I'm not so sure I want to pray that. He literally looked at me and said, I'm okay with Jesus being my savior, but I don't think I'm ready for him to be Lord. I, I was actually really impressed. Very impressed that he had the wherewithal to stop and to not just say the words, but to say, I'm not, I don't think I can make that decision. I wonder how many of us struggle with that question of, is Jesus your Lord or just your Savior? It's easy to have Jesus be our Savior. We, who doesn't want to be loved and forgiven for sins, right? I, we all want that, I would think. A free gift of grace? Sign me up. But to put my life under the authority of God? Okay. What does that look like? Now, let's be honest. All of us have areas that are easy to put under the authority of God and areas of life that are more difficult. And it might be easy for you in one area and difficult in another, and not, we all have different things. Some of you in this church are super generous with your resources, your finances, your stuff. You put that under the authority of the Lord, and it's so natural to you. Some of you are a model to the rest of us where you, you, God has blessed you and you say, I, I use this for the poor, I, I, I support the church. If you want to borrow something, my hands are free. Some of you, you have no problem with that area of your life. Others, that might be an area you say, okay, I'll make you Lord of everything, but this is my stuff. For some, maybe it's easy to make Lord, Jesus Lord over your finances, but it comes to your kids, you say, hold on. I got this. I'll be the one to determine what my kid's life looks like. And we kind of helicopter around them and we make all the decisions for them. And, and when things don't go well, we say, God, are you not there? I said, oh, I thought you were Lord over this situation. How about your marriage? Is it under the authority of the Lord? Or is that one where you say, this is about me? What I want, what I can get. See, we all have areas that are easier to hand over than others. It's just natural. It's part of who we are. And that's the beauty of the church as we learn and we grow together. But the question James is asking is, who is Lord in your life? Will you put your life under the authority of God? So he says, put your life on the authority of God. Submit yourself. This means making Jesus, uh, and if we make Jesus Lord in our lives, that means that all of our relationships are under his guiding. All of our relationships are under the guidance of God. Our, our marriages, our parenting, as in the workplace, as a leader, as an employee, 
as a coworker, as a fellow church member. Our relationships are under the authority of the Lord. That's when if he is the Lord of your life. So then James, as the rest of this passage, is going to talk about two most important relationships we have, our relationship with God and with others, and what that looks like if we truly humble ourselves and submit and put God's authority over our lives. That's the way the rest of this thing is going to go. And he, we have to start with that vertical relationship, you and God. What does that relationship look like? Because the rest is predicated on that. If we don't have that foundation of our life in Christ, then our relationships with others are going to come up short time and time again because the only power you have is yourself. And the only thing you can depend on is you and the goodwill of the others around you. And let's be honest, as humans, we all fall short, do we not? We all have the moments when we don't want to be selfless. We all have the moments when we want it to be about us. And in a life in the kingdom of God, it looks different. So, let's, so the first thing we're going to look at here that James is talking about is this. It's we want to be humble in our posture with God. So that's the first thing he's going to talk about. To have healthy relationships, we want to be humble first in our posture towards God. That's why he says, submit therefore to God. And then he says, resist the devil and draw near to God. Verse 8 Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. I love when he uses that language. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So let's kind of talk about this a little bit. He starts off and says, resist the devil, and he will flee, flee from you. Now, what does that even mean? I, I got to be honest, I don't walk through my life thinking, oh, I got to resist the devil today. There's times it feels like there's spiritual force of evil. It's very present. Even if you say, I'm struggling to believe in God, most people would say there are evil forces in the world. The writers of scripture use this word in Greek. This is diabolos. You can see where we get our word for devil. In Hebrew, it's satan. So we get Satan. And this is talking about the fallen angel who is opposed to God. That's that idea of what, what, when we talk about Satan, who is that? It's this angel that opposed God. And the whole point of the enemy of Satan throughout Scripture is to separate mankind from God, your creator. That's the point. Satan's goal is to separate us from the one who were made in his image. And how does that work? Through causing conflict and chaos and all the evil in the world. You can see how then we start questioning how could God be real? real? Look at all the evil in the world. Look how people treat each other. Look how Christians treat each other. That's the goal, to separate us, to cause division so that we are separated from God. So that's why James is saying, you know, part of submitting, putting your life under the authority of God, you need to be recognized what the goal of the enemy is, and that is to get you to be separated from this God, to be disconnected from your creator. So how do you combat that? And then he talks about how to combat it. This is part of being humble. We want to draw near to him. To draw near to God. Look at verse 8. Come close to God, he'll come close to you. This is not talking about, um, he's already talking to Christians, so this isn't saying when you sin, now you're, God's somehow left you, that somehow the Holy Spirit no longer dwells in you because you made a mistake. That's not true. That's not the way Scripture works. This is talking about in our relationship with him as we repent and turn to God, that there's this closeness we experience. Look how he says it now. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, 
you double-minded. So he gives us two ideas of how do we draw near to God. So here's how we draw near to God. The first one is this. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. And he's, James is actually using language directly from the Old Testament. So he's writing here in the New Testament, but he's referring to the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And this is language of the priests. Look what it says in Psalm chapter 24, verse 3. I have it for you on the screen. Who may ascend to the mountain of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? It's the one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not trust in an idol or swear by a false god. So in scripture, when you have standing in the holy mountain of the Lord or in his holy place, this is talking about closeness to God. Who can do that? One with clean hands and a pure heart. So James is picking up this priestly language, and there's two things that he's referring to. Uh, Your hands are the external behaviors. So this is your actions. Those who's, if you have clean hands, your ways are reflecting the ways of Jesus. Your, your, Your actions are reflecting the image of God that you've been created in. So that's clean hands. That's why he says, those with clean hands, you sinners. Meaning, yeah, we fall short. But your actions matter. The next thing he says this, is purify your hearts. This is talking about the internal attitudes. You know, I find that as a Christian, it's often easier to have clean hands, to have my actions to be godly, than it is to have my attitudes to be godly. It's much easier to to force myself or to learn and practice to do the right things than always to think the right way about people. It's it's very easy to go through the day and have interactions, and I won't say or do what's on my mind, but my attitudes inside are not Christ-like. Am I the only one? (laughs) So... He says, also, our internal attitudes, our hearts. Notice he says, you double-minded. Well, he's referring to what we looked at last week. You can't be a friend of God and a friend of the world. That's being double-minded. So when our attitudes, our behaviors are one thing, but our internal attitudes are different, we are double-minded. We are being friend with God and friend with the world. And he challenges that notion. So being humble, having a posture of humility before God means we're going to We're going to draw near to him. So we start by cleansing our hands and purifying our hearts. And then the next part of it, the the rest of the verse, starting in verse 9, be miserable. (laughs) This is how you draw near to God. Be miserable. (laughs) Don't you love that? And mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. I, when I grew up, was growing up and going to church, we weren't an overly religious home, but we did go to church uh, on most weekends. And for me, this verse represented my view of faith. Be miserable. That's what it means. It's Sunday morning and your friends are riding their BMX bikes and building jumps and guess where you get to go? You have to put on a little, you know, early 80s suit and you have to go sit in this building that smells of stale coffee and watered down (laughs) Kool-Aid getting into my world a little bit (laughs) and your whole morning is wasted be miserable I'm like yeah okay that makes sense That's that's how I experienced faith that's what I thought Every once in a while, I had a Sunday school teacher maybe who I, who I enjoyed, but for the most part, it's like, oh, they put the unhappy people here to help with the kids' ministry. 
Because the happy people aren't here. <laughs> They're watching football. <laughs> this can't mean be miserable <laughs> in the way we think of it. Jesus said, I came to bring you life and to bring you abundant life. I don't believe a life of faith means to be miserable, but so what is he talking about? James is actually using Old Testament language again. So the se- first way to draw near to God is to have clean hands and a pure heart. The second way is to turn your laughter into mourning. And what he's really referring to here is this. In the Old Testament, now, the prophets used language about laughter. And laughter meant scoffing and mocking God. It meant being flippant about sin and evil in the world. So when you have this idea of laughter, often it's referred to the laughter of fools. In fact, Jesus referred to it in Luke chapter 6, where he was actually saying, uh, for, for those who, uh, you laugh now, you're going to mourn and weep later. Meaning you can mock God now, but you will experience the consequence of, consequences of that later. So when we have Old Testament language of laughter, it's not in our sense that we think of it as joy and something that was fun and happy. So when he says, be miserable, what he's saying is, when you look at your life, we look at the evil around us, we look at uh, the shortcomings and the pain and the fractions among all of the things that are apart from the life and the kingdom of God, he says, may you grieve over those things. May you grieve over those. Joel, one of the prophets, writes this in in chapter 2, verse 12. He says, even now, declares the Lord, even now, after you've turned away from him, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, he's writing to Christians, and he said, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. Meaning if we have sorrow over the right things, it actually leads to a life of no regrets, healed relationships, walking with others the way God has called us to. So the the way James begins this, or walks through this passage, he says, we want to be humble first in our relationship with God, is let's have a right view of our, our life and our sin, and let's grieve over it, and say we want our lives to reflect a life in the kingdom that he's created for. And so, verse 10, so humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Your your posture before God and one another matters. Let's start with this idea of humility. Look, God has given us all we need. Let's humble ourselves. You don't have to think so highly. None of us are above God. No one has reached a point in the world where we say, I'm the most important person. In fact, I heard this week, I'll go there, uh, I heard a joke about the Pope I'm going to go there. It's a good one. So the Pope got, saw his uh, limo driver. He walked up to his limo driver, and he said, hey, I never get to drive. Let me drive. So he said, fine, you can. So the limo driver gets in the back seat, and the Pope gets in his limo and starts driving. And he goes about 105 miles an hour down the street. He's like having a blast. Immediately, the limo driver knows I made a mistake. They get pulled over by the police officer walks to the window, Pope rolls down the window, and the officer immediately says, just wait here. He runs back to his car and gets on the, the radio to talk to the chief. He says, chief, we have a problem. I just pulled someone over for going 105. And he said, okay, give him a ticket. He goes, no, he's really important. He says, all the more. Give him a ticket. Prove a point. He goes, you don't understand. This is someone really important. He said, who is it? Is it like a famous movie star? No, better. 
Uh, a president? No, more important. Well, who is it? He goes, I don't know, but I'm pretty sure it's God because the Pope is his chauffeur. <laughs> Come on. I had to go there. <laughs> so all of us, no one has arrived that we can't humble ourselves and to serve others. Does that work? Ties in? Yeah, okay. <laughs> So first is we always want to get our vertical relationship with God right. Once we have our vertical relationship with God right and we humble ourselves before him, then it's about our posture towards others. To be humble in our posture with one another is what James goes from there. Once we understand that, Lord, our life is given from you, that you've given us all we need, and I give my life to you, now how do we treat one another? We have this foundation now on which we can love others the way he's called us to because we're not out to prove anything. We're not out to earn anything. It's okay if we serve. It's okay if we, become, if we forgive others. It's okay if we are people of mercy, even if it's not given back. You know why? Because our life isn't about what comes back to us. It's coming from our God. So James goes on, verse 11. So now we humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord. Verse 11 says, Don't speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge of it. There's only one lawgiver and judge. It's the one who's able to save and to destroy. But who are you judging your neighbor? So he's using this language. He's used it earlier in the letter of James. And what he's talking about here is when he says judging the law, that means you're denying the authority of the law in your life. So judging the law means you're making a judgment saying, I don't, this doesn't have authority in my life. I don't have to follow it this way. I don't have to live according to whatever teaching there is because I'm, I'm going to stand as a judge against it and determine when it applies and when it doesn't. So you're denying its authority in your life. Now, what law is he talking about? This goes back to James chapter 2, verse 8. He called it the royal law or the words and teachings of Jesus and about his kingdom. So what he's talking about is the kingdom of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. That's how James has used this idea of law. And, and in 2 verse 8, he talked about loving your neighbor as yourself was the basis of the royal law. So James is bringing it back up. Now, if we're humble in our posture towards others, and we're speaking evil against one another, which is a word they, they use here for slander, and, you're, and all of chapter 3, or most of chapter 3, that talked about how we use our words to tear others down, James would say, no, hey, listen, if we're doing that, that's not part of this kingdom of God. That's not a life of humility. That's a life of pride. That's assuming that you are better than those around you. So he's saying, and when you do that, you're making judgment about the very teachings of Christ and whether they apply to you or not. So judging your neighbor is... And, and often, and this, by the way, doesn't mean you can never confront one another. This doesn't mean there's never, that there's never times when you go up to someone and say, hey, the way you're behaving doesn't feel like that's a part of the kingdom of God. Or what you just did there, that really hurt, let's talk about that. It, it doesn't mean you let everything go. But notice what he says, speaking against, slandering one another. A few weeks ago, we looked at the idea of gossiping, creating division. Look what Paul writes in the letter to Titus in chapter 3. I have it on the screen for you. It says, Remind people to be subject, here's that word again, to submit, to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, 
to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always be gentle towards everyone. Do we see this lived out pretty often in our, in our world? <laughs> right here, look at this. Slander no one, be peaceable and considerate. Wow. This means that uh, this is slander no one uh, is a Greek word for uh, no one. <laughs> How many of us say, well, I'm not slandering the people I like, or I'm only slandering these politicians because I don't actually know them. I'm only slandering the people who have different view than me. All of those don't fit with the word no one. What, what Paul is writing to Titus and what James is talking about, is this is about you and your heart. It's what it does to you. Be peaceable and considerate. What does it do to you? Always be gentle towards everyone. Again, Greek word, it means everyone. So are our words as Christians, can we be accused of being slanderous? Not considerate? Not peaceable? I'm going to bring it into politics because there's an election in two days. And it's very relevant. It's okay to have candidates you don't like. It's okay to have policies you vote against. I'm all for that. It's okay to say, hey, I'm not voting for this person. I'm voting for this one. It, that you, we need to do that. But what's not okay is to then to use our words in ways that I, Jesus would say, wait, you guys are Christians? If you're walking around and saying stuff like, let's go, Brandon, let's be honest, that is not Christ-like. It's not. You're forgiven if you've done it. You have time to go home and take down your street sign. But that's not, that's not the ways of Jesus. It's just not. And if we really believe God's on his throne and he's in control, he's going to be in control whoever our leaders are. And we can't change who we are as followers of Christ just because the world around us is changing who they are. We just can't doesn't fit with scripture. Proverbs 11, chapter, 12, or chapter 11, verse 12 says this, whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of wisdom remains silent. Whoever belittles his neighbor lacks sense, but a man of understanding remains silent. Also, Proverbs 16, 24 says this, gracious words are like eating honeycomb cereal. <laughs> I, re- I saw that, and I was like, oh, I love honeycomb. Okay, gracious words are like a honeycomb. Sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Gracious words, I, I think this is not just who receives the words, but it's who gives them. If you're a person who's gracious with your words, it's honeycomb, it's like sweetness to the soul of the people you're talking to and health to their body, and I think it's sweetness to your soul and it's health to your body. So much more than when we do the other things, which ultimately causes anxiety and stress and just the fractured relationships. 
So when James, literally the way he applies what it looks like to be humble in our posture towards others, it's all about and how we're using our words, how we're building them up, how we're not judging them in the sense of where they are in their walk with Christ and oh, you're not Christian enough, look at me. He's saying no, we're gonna leave all of that to the giver of all good things, to our creator God, but what our role is, is we are gonna be gracious with our words. We're gonna build each other up. We're gonna love one another. We're gonna walk with one another through hard times. And we're going to be for each other. And we're going to love the people who don't believe what we believe. That's what we're called to do. And we're not going to be accused of being, oh, those hateful Christians who just spew hate just like everyone else. We're not going to be that in the kingdom of God. So how do we end? It's a question for you, for all of us to process. It's where do you need to submit yourself to God? What areas of your life do you need to submit to God? Now, all of it is the answer. <laughs> but for you in particular today, what is the area that the Holy Spirit's kind of speaking to you and saying, I just want to do some work with you? What is it? Is there an area of your life where there's a sin that you just say, hey, I'm okay with this? And he's saying, no, I submit this. Draw near to me. Clean hands and a pure heart. Is there, do you need to submit your possessions? Do you say, Lord, you're Lord of everything but my stuff? Today, is that something you need to say? You know what? I've been really selfish with all this stuff. Maybe you came and said, if I win the Powerball, though, the Lord, I'm going to be so generous. If you do, let us know. We've got some ideas. <laughs> How about relationships? Is that an area you need to submit? With people you love first. Maybe your relationships with people you don't love. <laughs> you need to submit that. Say, Lord, what would it look like if I let you be Lord of my life and how I treat the opposing political party? What would it look like if you were Lord of my life and how I treat my neighbor down the street that I don't really like? What would that look like? And then maybe a judgmental heart. Maybe some of you are here and you say, man, if only the people at Seacoast could be as Christian as I am. If only they would get their act together in this area, then we would be so much better. Maybe you need to say, Lord, what would it look like to let you be the judge? Maybe I'm going to just try it for a couple weeks. Now through Christmas, let's make it a Christmas goal. Does that sound good? Lord, you be Lord. Now until Christmas. What would that look like for you? When we chose to go through the book of James, we knew there was a lot of difficult theology and things we wanted to work through, but every week as our teaching team has been studying and processing this and talking about how we're going to teach it, every week I just feel like, oh man, we're getting another tough challenge. So practical. But friends, I believe, as James believed, that what Christ has already given to us his very life, his forgiveness, his grace. What's true of us, we are children of God. We are his sons and daughters. We have all we need for a life of godliness. And this is good for you, it's good for one another, and it's good for the world who does not yet know Jesus. And so we're called to this, not so that we have, so we can be miserable with one another. It's so that we can bring the joy of Jesus to the world that needs to know there's a better way. You with me on that? And so if it's hitting home like it is for me week after week, that's okay. 
Because God's calling us to his kingdom, not ours. And his kingdom's way better than any other kingdom we can dream of. Let me pray for you as we end. Would you stand? And we're gonna uh, pray, for, I'm gonna pray for you. We're gonna sing one last song in response. Well, God, I thank you so much uh, that you are good. I thank you that you give us instructions that bring life. And Lord, sometimes they're tough. But Lord, we all know ultimately deep down that these ways are good. That they're life-giving to others and to ourselves. And so God, we, we submit to you now. We give over authority in our lives to you. And Lord, the times when we fall short and we decide we want to be in control, we thank you for your grace. The times when we miss who you are, God, we thank you that you are bigger than our misunderstandings and our doubts and our failures. And God, the times when we kind of figure out and get it right, we thank you that your spirit is the one empowering us to live this life, and it's not on us. So I pray now that you continue to shape us into a community that loves each other well, a community that follows you well, and Lord, a community that brings your hope to every person who needs to hear. And for anyone who's here today who's never heard your message or doesn't know who you are, God, would you speak to their hearts today? And if you are here today and you say, I'm not sure what I believe, I want to invite you just to make a simple prayer, a prayer that says this, God, if you are real, would you reveal yourself to me? Speak to my heart. Show me who you are. And we're going to be praying for you and that others who come into your life and introduce you to Jesus, the one who loves you more than you could ever know. So God, we thank you for this time, and we turn our hearts back to you in prayer and praise. In your name, amen. Let's end our time. God, we thank you so much for today, and again, for the reminder of your good grace, for the reminder of your love, and reminder that if you are Lord, we don't have to be. So we pray that we could go with that truth today. And as we go, brothers and sisters, it's because we'll re you receive this blessing. You are sons and daughters of God because of what Jesus Christ has done through his life, his death, his resurrection. Your sins are forgiven and you are at peace with God. So go now in the power of the spirit who dwells in you and live his ways and be his love to a hurting and broken world. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks for coming out today. We invite you to say hello to the people who you said hello to earlier. Go grab some coffee together. We look forward to seeing you next week. We're getting close to the end of the series, so just finish strong. Broken